Welcome to Recovery Review. In 14 years of blogging, we've never posted any audio, but we've been using recordings to capture some of the interviews for our new series, Addiction Professionals in the Pandemic. These stories are so important, I want to make sure they reach as many people as possible, and I know some people prefer to read while others prefer to listen. This way, you can do whatever works best for you. Besides, there are some things that come across in the audio that just can't be captured in text. These were not professionally recorded. The quality isn't terrific for all of them, but I hope you enjoy This them. interview is with Andre Johnson. Andre is the president and CEO of Detroit Recovery Project. I've known Andre for close to 20 years, but he and I have never had a chance to talk one-on-one. -on -one. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot, and I hope you enjoy okay, it. Okay, so who are you? Uh, my name is Andre Johnson. I'm a person in long-term recovery, and what that means is I have not used drugs or alcohol in over 32 years. My sobriety date is July 13th, 1988. Um, if it was not for recovery, I wouldn't be able to be a productive member of society. I would not be able to be a um, active, present father to my 22-year-old um, daughter. And I certainly wouldn't be able to be a husband to uh, my wife. Um, and by the way, uh, we are newlyweds. We got married about seven weeks ago. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a busy year for you. Oh, extremely busy. Extremely busy. All right. What do you do professionally? Uh, professionally, um, I'm the president and chief executive officer of the Detroit Recovery Project, um, an organization that um, I founded around 2001. Um, we are a peer-led, peer-ran, peer-driven organization that operates in the city of Detroit. We have um, two large recovery centers, one on the east side and one on the west side of Detroit that is, were created and designed to help people um, sustain long-term recovery and also provide um, support services, meeting them wherever they are. Um, it's a, a self-centered um, approach, um, or shall I say client-centered approach. That may sound a little bit better. Um, and we meet the clients where they are. Um, and people come to us in many different phases. Some people come to us interested in um, obtaining employment, um, obtaining a higher education, or uh, reintegrating back with their families, reintegrating back with their loved ones, or just um, the need for tools to help them to stay drug and alcohol free, stay criminal free, um, and so these settings and environments are uh, predominantly recovery-ran, recovery-oriented um, to really meet people where they are. Okay. And so you've been with DRP since 2001. Any other professional experience in the area of addiction? So um, when I first got straight in 1998 or 88, um, I actually ended up becoming employed with an organization called ShareHouse. Um, it's a residential program that um, I was once a patient, and shortly after um, getting clean there, I realized that I wanted to work in the field of addiction. Um, I was really, really struck by the, the therapist who really empowered not only me, but empowered many other people to want to live a drug and alcohol-free lifestyle. Um, so I guess in a way I was... Um, baptized professionally uh, when you look at my colorful past 
And I was also um, realized early on that I didn't want to do no other work. Um, this was the work that I was interested in. This was the, the work that made my heart beat. This was the work that um, I found meaningful. And I would like to think that I even got good at it um, and learned a lot uh, professionally. So I worked at ShareHouse as a monitor. Back in the 80s, you can take a state exam. It was a state exam called Fundamentals, um, F-A-O-D-P, Fundamentals yeah. of Alcohol Drug Abuse Program. Right. <laughs> and when you get that certificate and pass that test, um, you feel like you just completed a doctoral degree. <laughs> but um, I remember getting that certificate and um, just learning more about addiction from a, um, a professional and an educational perspective and being able to intertwine and integrate my personal um, knowledge and experience with addiction to professional. Um, and so later I ended up going to college. Um, I did attend a local community college. Um, I got clean, Jason, at 18. Um, it was unprecedented at that time. Um, I was the youngest person in the rehab that probably housed close to 200 people. And um, everybody looked at me as their kid, their nephew, or their son. The average age of people in treatment at the time was 40 years old. Um, so I was able to be around a lot of people who had a lot of experiences. In fact, most of the experiences um, was the um, length of time I had been living. And so I would like to say I, I had a lot of wisdom poured poured upon me from uh, the participants who were in the program, but also my therapist. And let me just back up. Prior to um, entering ShareHouse, I was in a program called Higera Alcohol Drug Treatment Center in Westland, Michigan. And this program was based out of the old Eloise Psychiatric Hospital. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of folks don't know about that. But I was in that program for two weeks. Um, my probation officer personally transported me to that program. I had entered his office on a, a Monday, just a day like this, a nice sunny day in July. And I had, um, I was coming off a really, really tough, bad week weekend. And I had been a uh, fugitive from the uh, facility that I was in. My addiction had, had, had a lot basically helped me to see that I needed help. I hit a rock bottom at 18. And I remember entering this office and um, saying, I need help. And I just started crying. I said, I need help bad. And I remember that Friday before that Monday, I had walked like five miles in Detroit. Um, just, just cry out, um, God, I need help. Um, most people in recovery can relate to um, just saying, God, I need help. And so I had got help. Uh, he personally transported me to the drug treatment center. Um, and I had a woman who was my therapist. Her name was Wanda. She was a white woman, uh, five foot, five feet flat. And, uh, you know, I'm this inner city black kid. Like, what is this? You know, we were, you know, in some communities, blacks were, were taught, don't trust white folks. <laughs> but if you hit a bottom um, hard enough, you don't give a damn about the color of nobody's skin. Uh, in fact, uh, when you hit that bottom, you can become very colorblind. Uh, but this woman, this counselor, this therapist, um, she empowered me during those two weeks so much where uh, once I got done after those two weeks, I felt like she was my yoga and I was um, Luke Skywalker. 
um, <laughs> the horse was with me. <laughs> so um, I really have to tell you that I spent 14 days detoxing and, 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 and getting into visual therapy. And that was really when um, I can say that my, re my recovery pivoted. Um, she encouraged me to um, in a long-term treatment. And so I spent 120 days in share house. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of time is not even heard of. Um, after spending that 120 days, completing December 8, 1988, I immediately entered into a, um, they had a program called uh, Mayberry Grand um, Aftercare Program where I resided for two years. And so during those two years, I was um, really exposed to the field. Um, I got hired as a, as a staff monitor. And years later, after passing my FOD, FALDP, I ended up becoming a, a counselor for Sharehouse. And I realized at that point, um, a couple years later, um, I needed to pursue a higher education if I was going to really um, be able to grow and, 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 and really challenge myself. So I was able to go to Wayne County Community College, and then I eventually transferred to uh, Historically Black College in Atlanta, Georgia, Morehouse College. And I obtained my degree in psychology. And uh, at that time, I graduated in 1998. I remember it like it was yesterday. I had 10 years. I had a decade of recovery and sobriety. And I was feeling like I was on top of the world. And I realized that I needed to continue my education. So I eventually got my master's degree. Um, and um, so once I returned from Morehouse, in Atlanta, I got hired for an organization called Neighborhood Service Organization, worked there for one year, then I transferred to the Detroit Health Department and worked under the leadership of Dr. Calvin Trent, who was in charge of the City of Detroit Bureau of Substance Abuse Prevention, Treatment, and Recovery. And that's when I really began to understand some of the inner workings of the business from an administrative perspective, learning about block grant, learning about Medicaid dollars, how dollars are allocated. I would sit on committees that allocated $35 million through the City of Detroit Provider Network. Um, I also had a responsibility to um, act as a, um, 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 what they call it? Um, I was a project manager and my job was to audit the, all the drug treatment programs in Detroit. And components of that audit was financial audits and programmatic audits. And so that gave me a lot of insight to the business side of the addiction field. Um, and then that, um, and between doing that, uh, which was somewhat boring just because I was really pushing a lot of paperwork. Yeah. Um, and Dr. Trent said, hey, Andre, I would like for you to be the director of the Partnership for Drug-Free Detroit Coalition. And that was another component that was uh, very large, very influential. It was a, um, an organization that was founded by the Detroit City Councilwoman Alberta Tinsley Tilapi. And that coalition, we had a faith-based component. We had a recovery component, which was my responsibility to build from scratch. Um, in fact, Dr. Trent even said, hey, hey Andre, here's $100,000 of startup money, and I want you to creative recovery project. Um, and so just having all those experiences um, kind of morphed into um, what we know today as the Detroit Recovery Project, um, which, you know, obviously uh, we grew, we evolved, we're still growing. 
And I would like to say we're making a difference in, in the city of Detroit. Okay. You may have just answered my next question, <laughs> but that's professionally, what are you most proud of? Um, I would say professionally, um, um, you know, I'm excited about a lot of stuff, Jason. Uh, one is, you know, I was fortunate to receive an award from President Barack Obama called the Champion of Change Award um, during his last um, uh, days in the office. Um, I received some awards from Faces and Voices of Recovery, the, um, the Vernon Johnson Award. Um, I would say definitely some of the, 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 the awards, um, but probably um, uh, professionally, um, just being, um, I would like to say, a social entrepreneur that created an organization that has, that now employs uh, over 50 employees, and also with the creation and development of that organization, also being instrumental and making sure that recovery support services are now a billable service in the state of Michigan. Um, 20 years ago, it was not a billable service. Um, and so, you know, our organization was very instrumental in um, partnering with the um, um, drug, um, the state, um, Mr. Larry Scott's office, and um, they really listened. Um, you know, we partnered with Wayne County uh, we partnered with all the funder, uh, funding agencies through, uh, that were funding through government dollars to be able to bill for recovery support services. And now that's a big thing in our whole state, as I'm sure you know. Right. So which secures its future as part of the service? Right. We're able to now sustain a new innovative approach um, through lived experience. I mean, lived experience has a lot of value. And I think um, powers that be recognize that um, lived experience does have value and it was important to um, support financially. So you've been working in addiction and recovery for a long time. What keeps you working in the field? Well, the thing that keeps me is, um, is probably, I would say to people, you know, when you see people who come to you rock bottom, um, trying to figure out what's the next step. And you see them one, two, three, four, five years later, and they marry. Um, they have beautiful relationships with their children. They are homeowners. Um, they have positive uh, career track records, um, and they're staying sober. Um, so being an active member of the 12-step program, we have a saying, and that saying is you can only keep what we have by giving it away. <laughs> and so um, that's one of the things that motivates me. Uh, my predecessors, you know, the, the mentors I've had in my life, these were men um, and women who were, were very, very passionate, compassionate people um, that understood the importance of working in an inner city like Detroit, where we kind of see the downtrodden, where we see the person um, at a bottom, that hit a bottom below the bottom, and to see those people um, see and help individuals tap into their inner resiliency. Um, see people who um, have overcome the trauma, the hardships in life, and to see people living a drug-free, criminal-free, productive lifestyle is what motivates me to want to continue to work in this field. Um, I can never see enough of that. 
um, knowing that I was once on the other side of the tracks. And not only that, knowing that I've lost family members to drug addiction. And so when I think about my mother, Sandra Johnson, who died of an overdose on 9-11, um, 2004 Oxycontin overdose, and we're talking about a registered, she was a registered nurse by trade. She retired at Michigan Department of Corrections. Um, but with one of the things prior to her retirement, she had, was involved in several auto accidents, commuting from Huron Valley Prison to the Lower East Side of Detroit, uh, which resulted in a very serious leg injury. And that leg injury uh, resulted in the beginning and end of uh, abusing Oxycontin. And we're talking about a woman who never used any drugs or alcohol when I grew up. And so to see and know um, and to live through that, um, I realized and recognized the importance of um, having people like you and I who have some skin in the game and have some experience and knowledge. Um, I think this field is continuously growing and continuously evolving. And it's important that um, I think somebody like me continue to uh, stay engaged and be up for the challenges so that we can continue to have influence to create programs that are more meaningful and not necessarily focused on the financial aspect, but uh, focusing on uh, the quality of life for people we're serving. Thank you. I know that was a long answer. <laughs> so how has the pandemic affected DRP? Uh, you know, the pandemic has affected DRP in a major way. Um, we've certainly had a share of losing friends of our company, um, staff of our company, um, clients of our company. And uh, those lives are gone. Um, they will not, you know, we miss the voices. We, you know, it's, it's a, a grief and loss um, experience that I think me, myself, many of our, our staff have experienced or are experiencing. Um, and again, being in the inner city, um, you know, we have a saying, Jason, when, 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 when the state um, is, is, is battling with something, um, it can be like a cold, but in Detroit, it's like a flu. Um, it's really bad. Uh, relapse rates have, have increased because of the pandemic. Um, and as you know, recovery, the whole recovery model is, is built on a support system. It's built on embracing each other. It's built on hugging each other. It's built on loving each other. And um, the BC, before COVID, um, now everything has changed. Um, now we're encouraged to keep six feet. We're encouraged to um, uh, provide services via telehealth. And it's this non-contact approach. And telehealth services um, is, a, is a benefit you know, the fact that we are able to access it. But I do think that the ability to really make the, the connections, the face-to-face -face connections that we have historically made with our clients, uh, we have seen a client reduction in our organization. Um, but COVID is, is, is still alive and free in our community. Um, and we're continuing to um, be progressive, um, adhere to the um, um, precautions that comes along with COVID-19 and we're ready to fight the fight. You know, we're ready to instill recovery and instill a new lifestyle for people who are suffering from COVID-19 or um, helping people who are at risk to um, do the right thing. 
You mentioned seeing some relapses among clients. What are the biggest effects you see of the pandemic on the people you serve? So a couple of things. One is um, anxiety, um, depression, and something known as um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, a lot of folks are lonely. Um, and again, the whole recovery model has been built on having a camaraderie, um, being able to go to 12-step meetings and, and go out and eat lunch and dinner and breakfast. Um, those become your extended recovery family. Those become your extended family members. And so people who are not able to engage in those uh, recovery-oriented activities find themselves lonely. Um, my last count of the number of people who died in the recovery community in Detroit was 33 people. Um, and so we're talking about people who we were not able to grieve properly. Um, you know, with the funerals, um, having no more than five to 10 people, um, not even being able to uh, attend people's funerals. Um, and so it's a lot going on that does have a lot of impact. And so when you have anxiety, you have depression, a lot of it is, is based on fear. Um, and when you, when you have these fears, um, I think as a society, whether you're in recovery or not, uh, people are looking to escape those feelings and those emotions. Um, we know recovery is about embracing those fears, embracing those emotions, because those are the very components that allow us to grow and flourish. Um, so we have to be able to, what I would say, find the silver lining in all of this. Um, and sometimes it's finding ourselves. And so if we're finding ourselves um, alone, um, that's an opportunity to grow. Um, some people look at it as a negative thing, which it can have some negative consequences if you do not take action, if you don't have someone to help you to process it. You know, I, I was on the phone with a guy earlier who was crying like a baby, and he was like, he was just experiencing all this fear. And, um, and, and the fear was he's seven years clean, he's in school, he's married, he just closed on a new home, and life is going good. But um, again, I think um, fear is a scary place. But one of the things I learned early in recovery is it's about having healthy fear. Um, for me, you want to have a healthy fear about using drugs. You want to have a healthy, healthy, healthy fear about selling drugs. And you take that energy and you flip it and doing something positive and concrete for yourself. And, and that's when you begin to grow. Uh, recovery is about growing, expanding, and tapping into our inner self so that we can be the best person that we can be. Tapping into our inner creativity because fear, anxiety, and depression um, is a path to help. They're all distractions. They're distractions that will take us from, from being the best us. All right, so we're all hoping that the pandemic passes in the coming months. What long-term effects do you see on the field? I think um, the long-term effects will definitely be, um, we'll, we'll probably have an increasing number of telehealth services, um, which I'm sure we've already, um, you know, I heard Zoom stock went up, not that I'm trying to promote Zoom, but um, I'm sure they've certainly benefited from the pandemic uh, because of telehealth. 
because of the way business is now being done. I mean, most business as we know it is being done uh, being Zoom. Um, and so I'm, I'm thinking that it's going to be an opportunity for us to develop and create some more innovative recovery programs to help people during this pandemic. I don't think it's realistic that uh, we can anticipate this pandemic being over in four months. I think the last article I read from the Center for Disease Control indicated that we can expect some vaccinations uh, towards the end of uh, 21. And so that means we know we have a whole nother year around us. Um, and so I think we have been creative and innovative in terms of creating uh, support groups on Zoom. Um, obviously this is innovative and I'm very thankful that you invited me to be, to be a part of your recovery blog because we have to get the communication out. We gotta continue to, to make sure that um, these stories are available in our communities. Um, and we just got to keep working together. So, so that's, you know, the upside. Uh, you just mentioned kind of PTSD, you know, among people you serve. Do you see any ways services are going to have to change in response to this? So um, I think the only way, the only real alternative at this point is telehealth services. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think we have to be more creative in being able to engage people in some therapeutic approaches that can really help people um, find hope in their spaces. Um, sometimes they don't, you know, always, well, so some of the challenges in Detroit, Jason, and some people don't have, uh, computer literacy skills. In fact, a lot of people don't have it. Um, and then a lot of people don't have a computer. In some cases, they don't have internet access. So I think as this disease or this COVID-19 continues to grow, um, I think it's going to get worse for the people who are less fortunate. Um, it's going to have a, a more dire impact on um, the vulnerable and disenfranchised communities because they don't have the access um, that other communities have. So my last question is, if you were able to devote yourself to a fantasy project to improve treatment and recovery supports, what would it be? Um, I would have a compound of, say that question one more time. If you were able to devote yourself to a fantasy project to improve treatment and recovery support, what would it be? I would have a one-stop shop that would encompass um, treatment, phase one, um, phase two, recovery support services. And it would be a more integrated approach where uh, we would have residential treatment, uh, we would have outpatient treatment, and then people can transition from um, residential treatment to recovery housing and they can transition from residential treatment to outpatient therapy. And then while they're receiving outpatient therapy, it will be an integrated approach with um, recovery support services. So a person, everybody would have an outpatient therapist and they would also be assigned a recovery coach. And that program would be at least a one or two year commitment. Okay. I think um, if we're gonna really make a difference and, and make a change in people's lives, that we have to have realistic uh, programs that are more long-term oriented. Um, 28 days, you just scratch the surface. Mm -hmm. um, and again, working in the, with the population in Detroit, 
where you have people who don't have uh, employability skills, transportation, legal issues that has to be resolved and worked out. And it often takes three to four years just to um, find some, some freedom in those areas. Uh, a lot of men, we, we serve probably 70 to 80% are men. And a lot of these men have um, uh, child support issues where they may owe uh, Wayne County um, uh, Third Circuit Court um, somewhere between fifty dollars to $100,000 in uh, child support. Um, and then not mentioning poor credit, um, FICO scores average four to 500 um, and don't really have an understanding of what credit is. Um, and then we're talking about bank accounts. Uh, and so it's a lot of work needs to be done. Another component that would be vital for me would be to make sure we have an integrated uh, physical health component. Um, because now I'm seeing a lot, I say people not only not dying by the drugs, but they dying by the fork. Uh, a lot of people have COVID-19 weight now. Um, because you're in Man, the I'm sorry, they're, they're not dying by the drugs, they're dying by the what? Fork. Okay. Um, eating up everything, you know. And so we're going to see an increase of comorbidity. Um, people who have diabetes, high, dip, high blood pressure, um, high cholesterol, um, people are not, you know, the healthcare system is, is, is swamped and saturated right now. Uh, so people are not getting their regular health screening. Men are not getting their prostate exam. Um, females are not getting their mammograms exam. And so I would like to see, again, talking about my fantasy world would be a more holistic approach that helps people. And so when you enter into this office, I would have a, a TV monitor and it would talk about uh, holistic uh, recovery program that describes your physical health, your health and wellness, and describes what you're going to do to retain and sustain your long-term recovery so that you can re reduce your chances of relapse. Um, so I have a full-fledged fantasy um, agency in my head. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm with you on the, on the healthcare thing, element of it too, because, you know, as you know, one of the goals is to try and stay in people's lives for like up to five years. And I think realistically, the only way we're going to stay in people's lives for up to five years is if they have access to healthcare and their healthcare providers are recovery informed and are able to do checkups and, you know, and provide ongoing support and monitoring. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the checkups are, are critical. And you know, Jason, um, just calling somebody, hey, Jason, I'm just checking to see how you're doing today. You may be in a funk. You may be in a mental pickle. And having somebody you can vent to and talk through, talk things through during that moment um, gives you another day one. Mm -hmm. You know. Right. Thanks yeah. a lot, Andre. I'm going to hit.